Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'm Peter Kafka. And thanks for listening to Recode Replay. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 Code Conference. We're going to let you hear it in just a second for free. You're welcome. But before we do that, we want to plug another conference. Okay, fine, if you insist. I must, I must. You must Um, insist. If you like this event, there's a very good chance you're going to like Code Media 2018. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. 2018. I can't believe it's next year. Next year. Absolutely. Save the date. Peter and I will both be there, which means it's going to be a fantastic event. I've been to all of them and I have learned things. I would actually pay for them, Peter. We may charge you this year. Uh, One more time. That's Code Media 2018. It's like this event, but it's in 2018. February 12th and 13th. Go to events.recode.net for all the deets, as the kids say. As the kids say. Thanks, Peter. See ya. I'm going to bring on Dean Bacay. He's the executive editor of the New York Times. We are very excited to have him here. Come on up, Dean. Start spreading the news. Thank you. We have good people who do theme music for us. I like the music. Can I keep that theme music? It's all yours as long okay. as you pay for it. Right. <laughs> um, I saw you earlier today. I said we haven't really prepped for this conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need to. You said. I think you're probably going to ask me about Trump. I think so. You have good news judgment. Um, <laughs> prior, prior to the inauguration, there was a lot of conversation in the press about the press, and there was a lot of worry that the, the Trump administration, Trump has this war footing against the press, mm-hmm. and it'd be very difficult to get stories mm-hmm. out of Washington. Turns out, doesn't seem to be a problem. No, it's, been, it's been remarkably easy to get stories out of Washington. Why, why, why is it easy? So um, there wasn't news today. I, did, did I, yeah, no, I didn't miss it. It's something. early, though. But Usually you or the Washington Post yeah. have a jaw-dropping yeah. story every, time, every day around this time about something out of the White House. I tried to get Marty to call a truce just for today. So, so what happened? Why is it so easy to get news out of the Trump administration? I think it's two things. Um, first, this administration is doing stuff that sort of has upset the permanent government of Washington, the people who are, you know, who exist in agency roles, whether it's at the EPA or the Pentagon or the intelligence community, and exist through all presidents. They're pushing back against. I think they're. I think that's part of it. So when Steve Bannon or people like him say this is the deep state coming to get us, you're saying there's truth to that. I, yeah, actually there is, but I think he not not in the way he means it. I don't think there's a conspiratorial meeting of people who want to take down Donald Trump, but I think in different agencies. There are people who are upset at specific things the Trump administration wants to do. But I think that's only part of it. I think a lot of the news is coming out because it's a White House in disarray. Um, It's a White House where I think there are two or three factions fighting for the ear and the attention of a president who probably didn't have fully formed views about everything before he took office. So it is true, in fact, that there's a Bannon faction that has a strong set of beliefs and a Gary Cohn faction that has a strong set of beliefs. And in any White House, when you have people sort of fighting for the soul of the president, stuff leaks out. So in fact, it's been remarkably easy. Within the newsroom, we've had, this, again, this deluge of stories, yeah. multiple stories a day. Um, not to be flippant, are you giving people a break? It seems like Maggie Haberman is working around the clock for you. You know, we try to give her a break. Um, we have, I mean, uh, uh, we doubled the number of people who cover the White House because it's so exhausting. We have six people covering the White House, which is more than we've ever had. But I, I, there's also a sense of exhilaration. Um, not because as many people would want us to take Donald Trump down. I think people feel like 
we're watching a Washington story unlike any other. I think we're seeing a drama in Washington, a fight in the White House, an investigation that's unprecedented, a White House that leaks, a government that leaks, and I think it's an irresistible story and it's hard to get people to take time off. So you're writing these amazing stories, you're covering this unfolding amazing mm -hmm. story. I'm assuming everyone in this room is reading the work that you guys are creating, the Washington Post is creating, yeah. a few other outlets are creating. There is also, we have learned, maybe some of us always knew this, a large swath of America that is not reading what you're producing, yeah. um, maybe fully unaware of some of these stories because they're getting their news from Fox News yeah. or the internet. Um, how much time do you spend thinking about trying to reach that segment of the country? How big do you think that segment is? It's big, and I think a lot about trying to reach it. I, I don't think about trying to reach it as a, you know, to be frank, as an executive of the New York Times who's trying to grow audience. I mean, I, of course that's a hat I wear. I think about trying to reach it because I don't, I think that news is not relevant if it's not widely read. I also think news is less relevant if it's only read by the people who sort of always read you. I, I desperately want the New York Times to be read as widely as possible. I think it's a big group of people. I have been critical in the past of Fox News, which I think at its worst in cases like Fox and Friends and others, I think have distorted the news. I think they ignore significant news stories. I think they twist news stories. And I think, I'm not talking about Chris Wallace, I'm talking about big chunk, chunks of Fox News. Um, and I, th I do feel an obligation to make sure as much of America as possible understands the story and that I understand America. But we're well past the time, in part because of the work some of the people in this room have done, um, where everyone in America got their news from the Times and maybe yeah. their local paper, maybe one <clears> of three <throat> broadcast networks. Right now you can pick a million different uh, internet outlets, you have your choice of, of cable news outlets. Um, it seems like regardless of what happens with the Trump administration, this is going to be a permanent uh, a permanent part of the landscape that the, everyone, the news is divided up into tiny chunks, you pick your own version of news and don't receive many other viewpoints. Y yes, but I still think if you go out in any part of the country, there's a vague sense that there's some relationship between the Trump administration and Russia and that it's under investigation. I do think those things make their way through. Sometimes they make their way through in a way that um, is unfortunate and it gets twisted, but I think that stuff has impact over time. I mean, and maybe that is the naive wish of a guy who's been a journalist since he was 19 years old, but I think the stuff has impact if you keep banging away at it and writing it honorably and telling the truth. After the election, you guys put out a note, I think it was from you and-, and Me and the publisher. Publisher, uh, <clears throat> Arthur Salzberger, this is the one that Trump refers to as an apology. Yes. You don't apologize. Yes. You don't apologize to him. Yeah. Do you say that, that we uh, underestimated, you underestimated yeah. the support he had and yeah. it sort of was making you rethink a bit yeah. how you cover things. I read that as we're going to go out and try to figure out how a lot of the country actually thinks and, and behaves in ways that we haven't done in the past. How's that going? It's going well. That was only part of it. Um, part of it was, a big part of it was that, I, I mean, I do think the entire press, with, with exceptions, a lot of exceptions, but most of the press misunderstood the tremendous amount of anger and, and anti-elitism um, that drove Donald Trump to power. I mean, I certainly did. Um, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Um, sort of the Trump campaign. Sort of the Trump campaign. 
But, but if you're a journalist and you want to be true to yourself and your profession, you have to sit down and say, how do I get that better? So we're moving people around in the country. We're moving more people into the Midwest. Um, but I'm also listening to reporters more. I'm thinking a lot harder about how we cover some things that maybe escape New Yorkers like me, um, like religion. Um, I, think there, I think we're just trying to broaden the way we think about the world. Um, and I think that's important, right? If, if you are fundamentally the New York Times and you're based in New York and, and, and you attract an elite group of people and you have an elite group of readers, <clears throat> is there just a fundamental sort of gap between you guys fully understanding what it's like to be in semi-rural Ohio and what's going on there? Is this something where you, or if you put enough people out there and send enough people out into the field, you can eventually get an honest representation of what's happening there? Well, I grew up in a very Catholic family in an all-black neighborhood in the South. So I'm uncomfortable being described as elitist. Sorry. <laughs> Work for an elite <laughs> institution. But no, no, not by you, but yeah. by the general notion. And, I'm, and I think, on the other hand, I've lived in New York for years now. Um, I think that there is a way to understand the country, listen to the country without pandering to the country. I do think it affects the way we look at the world that we're, we tend to be largely in New York and Los Angeles. But my argument is I can't let us get away with that. That's not like, I can't get away with saying, we're not gonna understand the rest of the country because we all live in New York. I can't, that's, that's not journalistic to me. Journalistic to me is, is in and of itself the inquiry, in and of itself, wanting to understand the world. It's not, it's walking out into the world without preconceived notions. So I gotta try, I gotta do that. What is it, what is a subscription of the New York Times cost? What does that cost per month? Uh, probably about a thousand dollars, it's a lot. So it's a lot of money. It's a lot of um, money. This is your business model, you guys <clears throat> have raised it. Yeah. You guys used to be an advertising based yeah. business. Um, over the last 20 years it's flipped, yeah. about 60% of your revenue is subscription. Yeah. Do you think about making that news, some of that news, accessible to people who don't have $1,000 to spend on the New York Times? Well, it is, because the paywall is permeable enough so that you know, 130, we have 130 million readers, and not all those people, very few of those people are subscribers. Um, so I, I do think that you can read the New York Times even if you don't have a ton of money. And by the way, that's important to me. I, don't, I, I would not want to leave behind a New York Times that is that is elitist. Um, and, and by the way, I think that's a struggle for, I mean, one of the struggles I think for the country is that the very best remaining news organizations in the country are in Washington and New York. And I don't think that's great. I think that puts more journalistic pressure on me and my friend Marty Barron to understand the rest of the country. Um, and I think, I, f I feel that pressure tremendously. I would not want to leave a New York Times that, you know, feels like it's an elitist institution that is only read by wealthy Americans. This is almost like we prep, because this is my next question. Mm -hmm. you, you're doing okay at the Times. You guys yeah. aren't out of the woods. You're probably yeah. going to have layoffs. And yeah. We can talk about that in a bit. Uh, the Washington Post seems like they're going to be okay, in part because they're owned by a billionaire. The Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. Seems like they're doing okay. You guys are all moving to a subscription model. That seems to work. If you are a national publication with enough stature and an audience yeah. that can afford to pay for you, that's a real way to proceed into the yeah. future. Um, 
what happens to everybody else? What happens to the mid-sized papers, the regional papers, the small-town papers that can't charge $1,000 for a subscription? I think the biggest crisis in journalism in America is the crisis of local news. I think it's huge. I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite understood or accepted. Um, I, you know, when I look at the papers I started out in New Orleans and places like that, I don't know what the model is for them. I think we better figure it out. Um, I think that the New York Times will be great. Um, you're right, we're not out of the woods. We will be great. The Journal will be great. The Post will be great. But we have got to figure out a way for the Buffaloes, the New Orleanses, the Atlantas, not necessarily those institutions, by the way, because not every local news organization will survive or, or, to be frank, deserves to survive. But we've got to figure out a way so that if, if a school board does something really important that affects people's lives in a suburb of New Orleans or a suburb of, of Atlanta that it's covered. I don't know what that model is, but I wish some of the biggest brains that have been thinking about the future of journalism think about that. And I hope that some of the philanthropists who think about the future of journalism think about that, because that's, that's verging on a crisis. Because most of the versions of the answer to this are either find a billionaire or a very rich person to support your local paper, and or with a very small staff, use social media, use yeah. Twitter to augment what you're doing. Um, it seems like that's not enough. It, you're talking to a bunch of people who have money and access to technology. What do you, what do you want from them? Is that, is, that the, is that your ask? You want them to help with, with local news? Well, I want them to help me first. What do you need? Um, you know, look, I think that, um, I mean, I think that the New York Times has proven in the last, uh, let me talk about me, then I'll talk about them, forgive me. Um, I think the New York Times has proven in the last few months to be frank, and I'll, put the, I'll give the credit to the reporters, that it's vital to democracy. Um, I think that the New York Times, you know, is going to, I mean, I, I am not averse to accepting um, money if I can figure out how to do it from philanthropies. I mean, I think that the New York Times... you're a for-profit institution, publicly traded. Yeah, but there, there are for-profit institutions that have ways to accept money from philanthropies. So you will take a check? I will take a check under the right circumstances. Which I will are? take a check... Um, money devoted to a co an ambitious coverage area from somebody who has no political axe to grind. That person exists? Everyone's got an axe, right? <laughs> Everybody wants something. I mean, let's put it this way. I'm doing a, I'm doing a joint project with the New Orleans Times-Picayune, um, a paper that's close to my heart because I started there. We're doing, a, we're doing a joint project about the environment, and their reporting effort has been supported by philanthropists who just want more stories about the environment. I think that, I've, I've looked at it, I've talked to them, I think that's great, I think that's fine. So what I would say is subscribe to the New York Times, let's also think about the future of the New York Times, but then I would say to philanthropists and local leaders, you should think about a way to sustain local journalism. And I don't know what that model is. The current model obviously does not work, right? I mean, the model that sustains some of these great... And by the way, the papers themselves screwed up. I mean, a lot of these papers cut themselves to the bone. A lot of these papers um, were seduced by clicks. A lot of these papers, you know, produce too much, too much of their digital coverage is about crime and sports. 
And, and they have made some giant mistakes too. But first and foremost, right, their business went away. They their had a business, business based primarily right. on classified advertising. Right. That went away that's more right. than 10 years ago that's and right. nothing's replaced it. That's right, that's right. And, but, but what I meant when I said that some of them eroded their quality, they can't charge or they can't charge very much. Once you've sort of cut your newsroom significantly and you're not covering you know, local news in a really significant way, it's a little bit harder to go out to the community and say, please, now we want you to pay more than 25 cents. So you guys have had a couple, uh, I think they're called innovation reports. The yeah. Times, where one just came out. Yeah. Um, and the first one was about how do we sort of compete with the BuzzFeeds and the Huffington Post. A lot of it was about it was distribution. More, yeah, it was more about, it was more, and it was, it was a really good report. It was more about how the New York Times was like the last institution to embrace the fact that we had to go after audience that it wasn't just enough to produce good journalism, that we had to think about our audience and reaching it. It seems like some of the push, both from this last report and, and when I talk to people who work for you, is not just about figuring out whether you should put your articles on Facebook or yeah. whether, it's, it's how do you speak to your audience in an internet language, yeah. um, which is really interesting. I, mean, I hadn't yeah. thought about you guys trying to do this for a while. The New York Times is very much an institutional voice. Yeah. You have 100 plus years of, of, yeah. of, and structure and redundancy yeah. built to sort of stamp out yeah. people's voices, really. Yeah. So it's, but now it sounds like you're telling your writers, make this stuff more voicey, yeah. be informal. How's that there's work? A great, there's a great quote, I think it's from David Halberstam, um, the great New York Times foreign correspondent, the late David Halberstam. And he said, the New York Times takes bad reporters and lifts them to the level of the New York Times. And it takes great writers and lowers them to the level of the New York Times. <laughs> and I think that's right. I think that we had an institutional voice. I, I, I always think that one of the trickiest parts about leading a newsroom now is really working hard to understand the difference between what's merely custom and what's tradition that you actually have to pay attention to. Some of the ways we write news stories are merely custom. The, new, the, the common way an American news story is written, in the New York Times too, was done because if you had 100 stories landing on the copy desk all at the same time at 8.30 at night, if you decided to write it in poetry and I decided to do a first-person account, the system would break down, the paper wouldn't come out. That's, that's not tradition to hold on to. So I want voice. I think that a lot of the things we thought readers understood, they don't understand. I don't think they ever quite understood the lead of the paper. Meaning, meaning that the, the thing in the top yes. right, even though it was a yeah. small story, was actually the most important yeah. story instead of the thing they, to the side. I think that was our discipline, and I think that's an important discipline. But I, my feeling is I got to get rid of the things that keep readers from being able to understand us and relate to us and hold on to the things that protect the mission. How, how do your employees react to that? Because a lot of them have been there a long time. Yeah. A lot of them have been trained that this is what a New York Times story is, is what a New York Times sounds like. Yeah, oh, they love it when I know. <laughs> it's, do, do they want, do they say, great, we're, 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 we're happy about the freedom, or what have you been pushing us into this? It's we're a, not BuzzFeed. It's a mix, yeah. um, and we're not BuzzFeed, though I respect BuzzFeed, but we're, we're a different institution. It's a mix. I think some writers come in and say, you know, there was this remarkable night um, when, when Barack Obama gave a speech about terrorism. And Rukmini Kalamachi, who covers terrorism for us, did this tweet storm. And we all looked at it and, I, and we thought, oh my God, 
this is the best thing anybody's written about this speech. This is amazing. And it was on Twitter, not the New York Times. It was on Twitter, not the New York Times. I got to figure out a way to get that in the New York Times in a way that works for Rukmini and works for the New York Times. And it, and it is writing unlike any of the other writing we've, we've produced in the New York Times, but it's better. So when there's a terror attack, unfortunately, I've gotten used to this, I go to her Twitter feed yeah. and I wait for her to weigh yeah. in, sometimes right. 12 hours in, and That's she right. starts basically live tweeting, That's right. this has been claimed by ICE, this, this right. hasn't been claimed by ICE, this is the kind of explosive they yeah. use. It's riveting, Yeah. it's free, I'm not reading the New York Times, you're not trying to stop her from doing that. No, but I wanna figure out a way for that same sensibility to exist in the New York Times. And not just on terror attacks, just in general. People like Rukmini are, I think, inventing a new kind of journalistic writing, and I want it in the New York Times. And I think it's easier to read, it's certainly journalistic, and, and it's certainly Timesian in the sense that it fits, it follows all the rules, it's not opinion, it's just of the moment, and it's taken advantage of the technology. And you're trying to figure out how to do that. I want, her to, I want, I want that available to the readers of the New York Times. Someone told me you wanted to add photos of the, the yeah. writers next to their bylines, yeah. and that the guild is pushing back, and I was, it seems like, oh, this is a good example of like how sclerotic an organization yeah. like the Times is, where they, even just adding a photo is a problem. There's, there's pushback to some of, everybody, for the most part, is in the same general place. I think everybody understands that the New York Times has changed tremendously in the last couple of years and has to change more. And I think everybody understands that we can do that without selling out our principles. But when you get into the details, you get into arguments. There are people who, I want pictures and personalities, and I'll, I'll, the classic example is Alyssa Rubin, who worked for me at the LA Times and the New York Times and won a Pulitzer Prize for covering the war in Afghanistan. Alyssa Rubin, when I was the editor of the LA Times, I sent her to Afghanistan for the first time. She's covered those two wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, probably longer than anybody else in American journalism. So what do we do? We run a story by Alyssa Rubin. It has her name, and all it says is Kabul. We think that means to the reader. Alyssa Rubin knows all kinds of stuff. She's like in Kabul, right? They, I, we're only now understanding that's not what they know. It gives that story so much credibility, so much value to the New York Times. People will believe it if we tell them, in fact, here's Alyssa Rubin. She almost lost her life covering, covering war, and she's been covering war from the very first time the bombs fell on Afghanistan. I think if you read that, and if somebody in the White House wants to attack that story, I win. So that's why I want people to understand who those writers are, what they look like, what their backgrounds are. If people don't want their pictures, and I get it. Because there's I, a security reason or a safety reason? Yes, of course, of course. But in a case like this, helping people to understand that this young reporter um, has built her career around covering war is a big deal, and I think that it makes people believe her, which is, in the end, that's what I want to have 
happen. You guys hired an opinion writer from the, the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. Brett Stevens. I didn't hire him, but I, but I like the hire. The newspaper. Okay, yeah. so you, you like the hire. So I'll defend the hire. Some oh. people on Twitter didn't. Um, <laughs> Secretary Clinton, who may be in the audience, but she's going to hear tomorrow. Yeah. Um, there's a great story in New York Magazine where she's told of the hire. She says, what were they thinking? Why would you do that? Why would you have this sort of false equivalency? Because um, he takes an opposite stance on climate change, for yeah. instance. Why, why is that a good thing to have someone like that in it's the more, First off, it's more, he's not a climate denier if you really read his stuff. Um, and I'll, I'll do a bad job of capturing his stuff. I, I mean, I think what Brett, Brett is making the case, and it doesn't matter whether I agree with him, the editorial page actually disagrees with him. Brett is making the case that climate change has become a religion that brooks no disagreement and brooks no dispute. And I think that if, if the New York Times is going to actually help people understand the debate, having a thoughtful voice saying that is important. Because one of the arguments that, that, that people have is, look, there's plenty of places to get uh, uh, news from climate skeptics, if we want to call mm -hmm. them that, um, and they can get it anywhere they want. Yeah. Um, so if the New York Times is, is going to stand for something, well, they should stand for something and embrace, embrace the left side of the, the, the progressive. Well, the editorial page... Thingy, my Bobby. I just yeah. lost all my work <laughs> The editor of the New York Times. The it's embarrassing. The editorial page does embrace the Thingy, my Bobby. Thank you. <laughs> but I would argue that it is the job... And again, I'm not the opinion editor. It's like the part of... It's not part of my province. But people... The history of the New York Times, that whole section was not created just to have columnists and writers who agree with the New York Times. It was created after the fall of the Herald Tribune and the publisher of the New York Times, the original publisher of the New York Times, wanted some of the conservative columnists who worked for the Herald Tribune. So it was created as a forum for different voices. I don't understand how one can actually have an intellectual discourse in this country if you cannot have the opportunity to read thoughtful people with whom you disagree. We're at a moment in the country right now which I think you know, the left should do some soul searching too, right? We don't want to hear anything that we've, we've long said this about the, about the right, but I think the left, we don't, I'm not we, I'm a journalist, <laughs> but the left as a rule does not want to hear thoughtful disagreement. Spectrum, that was the word I was looking for yes. a minute ago. It took that's me a good, while. That's better than thingamabob. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll coin thingamabob. <laughs> talk about the Washington Post a few times. Yeah. You guys are in this interesting relationship. The Washington right what? The Washington Post. Post for, yeah. That's a tabloid biggest, in New York. Biggest newspaper no, okay. in the world, I think they called yeah. themselves for a while. Yeah. So uh, you guys are rivals. Yeah. Um, you've recently been chummy. You've, yeah. been, you've been tweeting nice things about each other. Mm -hmm. um, and then recently this weekend, there was some sniping between the two. Yeah. What's, what's the natural... Where, where should that relationship be? Should you guys be buddies? Should you be working together? Should you be we rivals? We shouldn't be working together. We should be respectful rivals. I want the Washington Post to succeed. I don't want them to succeed on each story. I want to beat them on most stories, but I want them to succeed. I've spent my whole, I've been in journalism for 40 years. Um, I have close friends at the Washington Post, the Times-Picayune, the LA Times. I don't want those people to lose their jobs. I also think, imagine, if you will, the moment we're at with the tension between this administration and the press 
if it was only one news organization, if it was only the New York Times and the Trump administration attacking it, or only the Washington Post and the Trump administration attacking it. That's not a healthy place to be. So even if the price is they occasionally beat me, very, very occasionally, <laughs> even if the price is they occasionally beat us, I want them to succeed. I want them to succeed. They make me nervous. Competition is the least examined motivation in American journalism. And I go to bed worried that Marty is going to beat us. And he goes to bed worried that we're going to beat him. And that makes for good journalism. That's who you're thinking about at night? Marty Barron in the Washington Post? That's your, <laughs> that's your fear? No, I mean, is that, is that, that's, that's what you wake up checking? It's one of my fears. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, so far it's mainly been the Post. So I, I, don't, I check my phone every, well, I get the alerts, so you don't have to check your phone anymore. Um, no, I worry about the Washington Post. And I know they worry about us, too. Good. I have more questions for you, but I want to open it up so you guys can ask questions. Got a few minutes here. If we can bring the lights up, or however we're doing it. We got lights and microphones. Everyone's shy at the first one of the It's days. early. They haven't had anything to drink they, yet. And then they get their courage up. You did get a lot of flack when, uh, when Brett Ste Howard Morgan, when Brett Stevens uh, came on as an as op-ed columnist yeah. now. Uh, are you, and, and of course, you know, it's, he runs and run every day. Are you going to have a conservative voice every day? What, what's the goal? First, just to remind everybody, I don't, I don't control the editorial or opinion pages. So I actually don't know what James Bennett's plans are. I, I will say that if you look at the mix of voices in the New York Times the opinion columnist, um, I, I think that they could afford a Brett Stevens if you look at the mix. Um, but I actually don't know what James's plans are. Tammy. Uh, Dean, I wanted to ask you how many people you have covering President Trump's Twitter feed. And do you have a philosophy <laughs> behind the coverage of tw his Twitter feed and also social media? Boy, the whole White House team, the whole Washington Bureau covers his Twitter feed. So that's 50, 60 people. Because if he tweets about defense, the Pentagon people jump right, in. But do you have a philosophy of how you take it apart? Is there something distracting it? I think you have to cover it. I've heard the criticism that we should just stop covering it. He's the president of the United States. Even if they're his late night thoughts or his early morning thoughts, they're his thoughts. Um, I, it would be irresponsible to say, wow, this one feels really weird. I'm not going to cover it. That's, right, that's, but, is it, but is it like scandal, <laughs> but we also, di but, taking, you know, diagramming all the different right. comments and adding up this many mentions? We truth squad all of them as soon as they come up. Everyone, as soon as he tweets, we report it, and then we tell people whether it's true. I think true. part of the fear, right, was that every, the press was getting whipsawed because he was tweeting and responded to every right. tweet, and is this a real tweet, is it a distraction? It seems like that's settled down a little bit. It's settled down, but I think, I mean, I, I, I think we got to cover them, and I think we have to truth test them. I think we have to, you know, compare them to things he said before. Um, so I, I, I have, no, I mean, I think, I don't think there's, is that, am I answering your question? No, not really. Ask me more. I'm sorry, I missed well, it. Well, I guess my question is, do you take it and then do you send it to the folks that cover justice and the folks yes. that cover the Defense yes. Department? And do you, you know, is it yes. a full circle or do you just say, hey, you know, as some news organizations are doing and saying, it's just another thought bubble. No, it's full, it's full circle. I mean, if he tweets something about 
Afghanistan, which he, I don't think he has, but if he tweets something about Afghanistan, Eric Schmidt, Michael Gordon, and all those people jump in. We have, it's one of the most, I shouldn't even say this, but one of the most remarkable things. Please do. <laughs> one of the most remarkable things, and every newsroom has this, right? We have sort of a, our own internal email chain um, that the whole Washington Bureau's on and then a few senior editors are on, and you can watch it unfold, right? Tweet goes out at 6.30 in the morning, almost always 6.30 in the morning, because I think he's a guy who reads print. 6.35, you know, the Pentagon guy or the White House guy says, I got this one. And it just moves through the chain. So no, it's, it's, they're examined by many, many, many people, including a fact checker we have on staff, and we're gonna even expand fact checking. So by a lot of people, including abroad if he, if he does something internationally. That was a lot of, word about, a lot of words about tweets. Lucas? <laughs> Uh, what percentage of your editorial staff or your political staff do you think voted for Hillary Clinton? And how do you consider <laughs> someone's ideological background when hiring to try to have a diverse group of people to ensure yeah. fairness? I have never asked in the six newspapers I've worked at how anybody voted. So I don't, I, I don't know, and I would never ask. Um, and I would never ask it in the course of an interview. But I think if what you're asking is the broader question, should we have a newsroom of people who have diverse political views, even if I don't ask them, the answer is yes. We should have a newsroom that's diverse by religion. I want to see, I'd love a newsroom where people have overt signs of religion, but I would never ask them how they voted. But I do think, and, I, and I will, I'll add one other thing, I do think our newsroom should be more diverse politically. I think, I think all newsrooms, if we're being honest, lean left. They're in New York, they're in Los Angeles, they're in Washington. I'm not sure when I see all, I don't know if the newsroom's in Chicago or Cleveland or New Orleans where I'm from, but big city newsrooms lean left. One real quick question here and one over here. Great, uh, you know, you've expanded on how you're using alternative ways of getting to audiences like uh, Twitter, but you haven't commented on Facebook and the veracity of of things that we see on Facebook. How do you guard your brand in those platforms when folks like The Post have done very well leveraging those platforms? You know, it's, we have a very complicated relationship with Facebook in terms of our brand on it. On the one hand, you make a mistake if you don't go where the readers are, where the audiences are, and the audiences are on Facebook. Um, so we have, a, we have sort of an, an uncomfortable relationship with Facebook. I don't know what I think about Facebook's obligation, if that's what you're getting at, to sort of police the... Or Twitter's or anybody else's, for that matter. You know, I don't know what I think about... I mean, I, that's a tricky issue. I mean, obviously, overt hate speech and violence, but, you know, I'm sort of a First Amendment semi-absolutist, right? I mean, I think if you believe in the thing... There's got to be a, I'm not talking hate speech, I'm not talking about videos where people chop people's heads off. I'm talking about true, even powerful derogatory comments. But real quick, you've, 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 people have talked about sharing monetization on those platforms, publishers right. sharing monetization. If you do that, you know, essentially you're endorsing the veracity of the platform. I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure I buy that we're endorsing the veracity of it if we, 
if we share monetization with them. I think that people will, I think, I think the only thing I can protect is mine, is the New York Times is, that makes sense. One last quick question here and then I have one last one for yeah. you. Um, ben Thompson has talked about the uh, kind of choke point gatekeeper status of Facebook with news organizations, especially local newspapers. Can you talk a little bit about the instant articles experiment and whether that worked out for you or not? You know, we did not get as get as deeply into instant articles. You were their launch partner. They were the yeah, no, no. people they were most proud of having. No, no, we were. But we, we never quite put as many articles on it. I think the Post, for, because they have a different business model, did more. I think we always kept it fairly limited, and we never went... I think we were, are and were wary of it and never went full in. I can't remember the exact amount, but it was never more than like 10 articles or something like that. I think we were wary of it. But, but I think the reason we were the launch partner is I think our philosophy is we have to say yes. Again, when the readers are there, you have to say yes, and then you can go in really wary, and we were. Last question. Yeah. Um, you have cuts coming. You're asking people to take buyouts, and if it doesn't work, yeah. you're going to have cuts. Um, what, what level can the newsroom get to, and you guys can still produce the quality you want, and, and, and what's going to get you out of the cycle of cuts every couple yeah. years? I think the New York Times will always have by far the biggest newsroom of our kind in the country. I'm not talking about CNN, because we do more stuff. Um, I mean, we, we, we may compete day-to-day -day aggressively with the Washington Post in covering Washington. But I think, I think Marty would agree they don't compete with us in covering the arts. Our business section's bigger. Um, they don't compete with us in covering fashion. We will always have a very big newsroom. But I do think that the newsroom, and I've said this, is going to have to be a little bit smaller and constructed differently. The newsroom was built for a print um, process with multiple rolling deadlines. And I think I got to figure out a way to change the structure of the newsroom. It will shrink. It will not shrink. You You're know. not going to have these cuts every couple of years. My goal is to get the new is to is to change the orientation of the newsroom for the era we're in, which includes more video, multimedia, as well as the best investigative reporters in the world and the best writers in the world. My goal is to complete that and get us at some point where we don't have to do this every year. And I think that's, if I can pull that off, I will, um, I will be a very Give yourself happy a pat editor. on the back. Yes. Good. Dean, this has been great. Thanks Thank for you. coming on. I know you're great. taking a red eye, so we'll let you get out. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 